0: From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, January 7th. President Biden has ordered outfitters operating on federal land pay their guides a $15 minimum wage. And outfitters aren't happy, including those here in Moab. There's even a lawsuit by an industry association to stop the order. Justin Higginbottom speaks with guides about their pay and an outfitter about their costs. And he looks at whether our rivers can provide workers with real careers.
1: When I started reaching out to local river guides to ask what they thought about a $15 minimum wage, I noticed something strange. No one really wanted to go on the record. Guides didn't want to use their name or say where they worked or comment even on the industry as a whole.
2: You know, I really enjoy guiding the river, as most guides do. And and so I'd be afraid to be singled out and lose that job, and then I don't get to enjoy the river and share these resources we have out west here of our great federal lands with people from all around. And I'd hate to lose that opportunity.
3: Can I be be an anonymous source so I don't get blacklisted for my industry. We're like these oompa loompa leprechaun people who don't have the normal human rights and minimum wages that Americans think are normal um, and we accept that, right? Thank you for the pizza party. That's good enough. But if you're like, hey, uh, someone almost died because this was unsafe or we're all being sexually harassed by a manager that the owner likes and we don't like it, if you start to like raise your hand or pull the fire alarm and say that things are wrong, you become a target and you sort of become a problem. And that sucks because like, dude, if we had better relationships between owners and workers, we could be partners.
1: So I interviewed a few guides anonymously to get a sense of what their work was like and what $15 per hour might actually pay for.
4: I think not everyone understands the scope of what a guide is. (laughs) There's that meme, like, what my friends think I do, what my mom thinks I do, what I actually do. Like, we have this reputation for being these, like, rah-rah party animals that just have fun with no responsibility. But my experience being a guide, I'm going to break down the day. It's things like waking up before 6 a.m. to make everyone coffee you know, sometimes in the spring or the fall, like your hand wash water is frozen and you're trying to cut raspberries and they're freezing to the knife and your hands are so cold, you're you're suffering a little. And then you're pumping up the boats and you're helping make breakfast for everyone. And maybe this is the first time people are taking down a tent. And so clients need help organizing their gear and packing their dry bags. And then you become an instructor, really teaching people what to expect for the day
3: you wake up at 5.30 a.m. to make coffee and everyone's kind of goes to bed and leaves you alone by like 10.30 at night. That's like a 17 hour day. So I remember when I started doing overnight trips, I was getting paid $65 a day. And I did the math, I realized that's $4.11 an hour. Yeah, sometimes you get tips, so it doubles that. So you make like $8.22 but sometimes you don't get tips because it was the Boy Scouts don't have any money or whatever it is. Oh man, it sucks so much. Like it's so bad, it's so degrading.
2: Yeah, I'd like to see us get paid a little bit more for the stuff that we do. It's usually a trip fee, not a per hour fee, but you know, on multi-day trips, you're out there 24 hours a day for three to four days straight. You know, it's certainly not $15 an hour. I'll echo what I what a lot of people say is we're out there using our skills to safely get people down a river, providing both expertise and going and attending classes like wilderness first responder and swiftwater rescue and things of that nature, and then get paid wages enough to to live in your car in the parking lot while owners take home a, a lot of the cut. It just seems like we should be paid more. Part of what we get paid for is in tips and oftentimes we're not getting tipped or we're getting tipped below what would be considered a living wage.
4: Every company is different, but my process of becoming a guide was first paying several hundred dollars to be trained through a week-long guide school. And once I was trained, I called this the period of limbo where I rode along with experienced guides to continue my guiding education for several weeks, and this time period was unpaid. And then during that time, I paid for numerous safety certifications and purchased gear like BFDs, life jackets, shoes, various rescue hardware, and it wasn't until I was checked off and working with clients that I began to earn back my initial guiding investments.
2: In general, river guiding is a pretty fleeting career. Nobody does it for that many years. River guides tend to work anywhere from, say, one to four seasons, I'd say, and then they, they move on to something. You know, they kind of grow up and become adults and decide, hey, I can't live this way and, and go find something else to do.
3: We're in charge of these beautiful, fragile ecosystems of these Canyon systems that are unlike anything else you'll find in the whole country and we have this opportunity to like share with people what these places mean what they're all about if you just have someone who's stumbling through their job because they're brand new people are going to leave here being like well they kind of had a good time but they're not going to maybe learn as much about the area like the interpretive knowledge definitely gets lost with the the sort of revolving door, turn and burn nature of guiding. It's weird that we're even at this point, that people have been kind of treated so sort of disposable, and there hasn't been this investment in quality or really good safety. We're just kind of flying by the seat of our pants.
4: And so when we think about the value of guides, it's not just this dispensable seasonal worker to like burn out and rehire, but people that have developed a really unique knowledge and relationship to an ecosystem, the landscape. And this understanding and connection influences how we conduct ourselves on tours, the culture of our companies, and even the oral history, if you will, that we're passing down from guide to guide. So there's something really magical about deeply knowledgeable guides. And for this reason, I highly value companies with high guide retention rates, companies that have the support and able to keep their guides around. I
2: think it's hard as, as a young adult to sit there and organize and stand up and say, hey, I won't won't work for these wages. When oftentimes there's somebody who will come right behind you and fill in that spot. I mean, I don't know many river guides that live in a house. Most of them live in their cars throughout the season and on the off season go somewhere else, do something else, maybe move back in with their parents. None of the river guides I know have health insurance. You know, they're, they're living hand to mouth really. and trying to save up for making it through the winter or making it through that shoulder season just so they can bridge the gap to the next job.
3: One of the things that's happened to a lot of people who live in tourism is they've been sort of infantilized. We're not gonna pay you like an adult. You're not gonna get to own a house like an adult. You're not gonna get to get a wife or or a husband or, or a kid. You're not gonna be able to envision financial stability, but you can live in a car and you can be drunk or high all the time and it's okay. And it's like the circus and it's cool. And we're all like a family and it's like a cult. It destroys people. There's depression issues they struggle with. And a lot of it is because people can never see a path towards adulthood or stability because instead of being paid money, like everyone else, they're given this like psychological wage. They're given like a high five in the summer And in the winter, when like you're living in a car in the ski resort, it's like, excuse me, sir, you have to move your car. You can't sleep here and no one cares. If people were paid the value of their work, it would open up paths to stability, to self-esteem. It'd be incredible. It'd be life-changing for people.
1: John Weisheit is the founder of Living Rivers, an organization that promotes river health. He was willing to use his name.
5: And I've been a river guide for 41 years. And I still do commercial trips, just not as much as I used to. In the
1: early 90s, he started organizing. He formed Colorado Plateau River Guides.
5: We um, wanted, of course, to be a river group that would increase our ability to give good interpretive talks, which is part of our job description. But some of us wanted to actually become advocates and like defend wilderness for the Colorado River to do actual preservation similar to what environmental groups do. And some of us actually wanted to do unionizing. And I, my attitude was we're gonna do all the above. We got big resistance from the outfitters on the advocacy and we got resistance on unionizing.
1: Similar to now, not many guides were willing to agitate publicly. He says outfitters were hostile to the idea, and a river guide labor union in Utah never took off.
5: So it turns out there are only a few of us were willing to risk our jobs and disturb the apple cart. You know, I'll be honest with you, river guides aren't the type of people to become activists or organizers. They, they really are. They're like herding cats, and there just wasn't enough of us to get momentum, to have a powerful seat at the table, which is unfortunate because if let's say 90% of us said, yeah, let's use the knives, we would have got it because they wouldn't have had any river guides. We would have striked. And of course, you know that means we wouldn't have had made any money and we're not a well, we don't, we don't have lots of money. We pretty much work hand to mouth. We're, we're intentionally poor, we like to be poor, as a culture, we're not really interested, obviously, in making lots of money. But that doesn't mean we're not worth more money. I think we are. Because, in fact, guides would probably become safer, more proficient. They would become better teachers, better leaders, if they were paid more. And actually, three or four good guides can do a better trip than eight lousy guides.
1: Just a quick aside about labor law. Lauren Scholnick specializes in workers' rights in Utah and Idaho.
6: If we're talking about the right to organize, potentially to form a labor union, or even not to form a labor union, but to speak to each other in a concerted way to talk about their wages, hours, working conditions, they have protections under the National Labor Relations Act.
1: That doesn't mean workers' fears of retaliation are unfounded. An employer can come up with a host of reasons to fire someone,
6: but that's what all employment cases, termination cases are made up of.
1: River guiding companies around the country have come out against a $15 minimum wage for guides, a public comment endorsed by the Utah Guides and Outfitters, which most Moab outfitters are a part of, says the new wage will cost the industry too much. Their comment praises former President Donald Trump's executive order, which exempted outfitters from this minimum wage. And the Colorado River Outfitters Association is suing the government to stop the wage increase. At least one outfitter in Moab, Oars Canyonlands Rafting, is a member of that group. The association has hired libertarian law firm Pacific Legal Foundation to represent them. Brian Merrill is the CEO of Western River Expeditions in Moab. He's a past president of the
7: Utah Guides and Outfitters.
1: And he says his company chose not to join the lawsuit, but he's against the minimum wage increase.
7: The average profit margin for outfitting businesses across the country was somewhere around five to six percent. So it's not a, not a lot of room for situations and expenses or or downturns and bookings and stuff. It, the difference between a profitable year and non-profitable year is it doesn't take much to swing from one direction to the other.
1: Merrill says it will just cost outfitters too much.
7: The crux of the issue for outfitters who do multi-day rafting trips primarily is the overtime issue.
1: He says an outfitter could make up for paying a higher wage by deducting meals from a paycheck or counting tips towards a guide's salary. His company offers a 401k, an insurance assistance program, and employee housing. Those might be cut, he says. In the end, he thinks the dream of a river-guiding job, providing a stable, middle-class life. A house, health insurance, enough to raise a family may not be realistic.
7: The fact is, no one's ever going to be able to make guiding the one-day trips on the Colorado River in Moab a career. Maybe in Cataract Canyon you could, though, if you had a complimentary winter job that paid you enough, and you cobbled the two together. And you know, but it's it's always going to be seasonal.
1: The last year has been pretty active for labor. A worker shortage means that for the first time for many, some workers have a bit of leverage. There have been dozens of strikes around the country. Union organizing has been tried or taken root in businesses once thought immune, like Starbucks. In our state, ski patrollers unionized in Park City to negotiate for compensation with Vale Resorts. Many river guides, especially here in Moab, say they could use more support. Higher wages could be part of that, but it's not everything
4: support for guides isn't just a paycheck support can look like guide housing quote unquote room and board on multi-day trips insurance teaching good physical form so that guides don't get hurt lifelong communities retirement plans regular time off so you can actually have that work-life balance and in some cases even helping to invest in guides professional development so there's a lot of ways that companies can support guides in making it a sustainable career
3: we could be the kind of job if you look at like the old rust belt heartland of like the formerly unionized jobs that like people want to fend 20 years from now people could say yeah you know we got to defend those river guide jobs because they're great they built this town and, and those river guides have pensions and they make living wages and get to buy houses and retire we could be raising the standard here in this in like the new industries of the booming tourism western economy
1: A common theme with those I spoke with is how much the industry would benefit from better paid guides. They don't want to bankrupt businesses. They want to make them better. In this sense, at least, outfitters and guides are on the same side. Justin Higginbottom for KZMU News.
0: If you're a guide or an outfitter and want to share your thoughts about pay or working conditions or anything else, we'd like to hear from you. You can send an email to news at kzmu.org. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. It's the new year, and that means a few new leadership changes in local government. Doug McMurdo of the Times Independent has more.
8: We have a new mayor and two new council members on the Moab City Council. And we have a new chairperson of the Grand County Commission and a new vice chair. So we had things happening politically. Monday, um, Mayor Joette Langanese was sworn in, along with uh, Councilors uh, Jason Taylor and Luke Wojciechowski. Mm. Um, so a new era has begun at City Hall. There's a lot of optimism. A whole lot of people showed up, um, and it got very little play because they wanted to keep it low-key because right. of covid but quite a few people showed up, and there was a there was a, an energy in the in council chambers during the swearing-in ceremony. So it was really uh, pretty fun to be there.
0: Always an exciting time when there's new people in office in local office, and um, good to know the information about our leadership at the county commission also changing.
8: Yes, yeah. uh, Gabe Wojtek uh, takes the gavel over for uh, Mary McGann as chair. Uh, they don't really have a gavel, but some, <laughs> sometimes they need one. <laughs> yeah, but they don't. They don't really have one. Uh-huh. Um, but he's he is the chair, and uh, Jacques Hadler is the vice chair.
0: Thank you for those updates, Doug. And there's there's a big story about local evictions in the times independent this week
8: yes it's um probably a harbinger of things to come as uh, a lot of people are saying including us um on december 16th nine days before christmas uh, 10 families living in a small trailer court at 200 north and 200 east uh, were noticed with eviction to Mm -hmm. make room for a townhome Mm -hmm. townhome development and uh, as we all know, everybody knows that housing is doesn't exist, especially affordable housing. Right. So these are 10 families, men, women, and children uh, that are going to be um, potentially homeless um, mm-hmm. to make room for this development. Now, Rihanna Medina from Moab Valley uh, Multicultural Center and um, uh, Zoe Houston from the center also um, are working with these families, trying to get them set up. They've, they've helped one f- one family uh, get moved in, two other families right. found housing on their on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's seven people that are still, or seven families that are still uh, in limbo. And Rihanna said, uh, "When push comes to shove, she doesn't expect them to have homes by January 31st." That's um, such
0: a short timeline. Like we were saying, like it's even it's hard even if you know you have to move in six months. Right. Let alone you know, given a month's notice. Right.
8: You know. It's it's a really tough thing because this is a very human story, mm-hmm. but it's also a very human story to uh, uh, be able to purchase land, evict people, uh-huh. and redevelop. This happened, and, and yeah. that that's happened all over the country, all over the mm-hmm. world, and so um, legally there's not a whole lot to do, and I think that's what Rihanna wants to see happen. Mm-hmm. She wants uh, the county commission and the the city council to um, come up with legislation that protects mm-hmm. people gives them a little bit more time and puts developers on notice. Right. You know, if you want to buy this land and turn it into townhomes mm-hmm. or whatever you want to do with it, mm-hmm. you're going to have to wait 6 months to give these people time. Mm-hmm. And if you if you want to expedite that time frame, you need mm-hmm. to you need to find them some housing right. or mm-hmm. or whatever. I mean, we're going to start losing people that we need. Mm -hmm. Um, To live our lives We're going to start losing um, Restaurant workers, nurses Police officers, sheriff's deputies Reporters Mm -hmm. You know, it could be argued whether or not we're needed But, um, (laughs) you know I'm just I'm just saying that it's it's a crisis, and, and as Rihanna said, uh, we need to quit doing this to each other.
0: You know, she certainly doesn't mince words in your piece in the Times Independent. You know, she says it's ridiculous to think giving them 45 days to find a place to live is sufficient. I think the Valley Multicultural Center is at the forefront of helping people in crisis, um, and also helping people find longer term solutions. But they've been carrying the burden of crisis management for quite some some time
8: they are averaging 50 clients per day that are either homeless or uh in imminent danger of becoming homeless and mm-hmm. uh, you know zoe made a good point too um here she is and her co-workers they're struggling to find housing mm-hmm. and their job is to help others right. find housing right. so i mean it's that right there paints a pretty stark photo for me I just uh, right. that that whole image is just uh uh, something wrong with it.
0: You know, I see you also have a quote from the now former mayor, Emily Nehouse talking about Walnut Lane. And I know that community members are frustrated with the lack of progress on the affordable housing construction. But that was a move to safeguard that property from being developed and those families being displaced.
8: R- right. The, the entire justification of making that $2 million purchase was to protect people just like what we're talking about right now, these 10 families. Yeah. And, you know, like I say in the very beginning of the story, never a good time to get evicted, especially through no fault of your own. But nine days before Christmas, you're told, you know, you've already spent a lot of it. And uh, Laura Vega, you know, she's a a house cleaner for, uh, and her husband is a landscaper. Mm -hmm. So they had saved up money to make it through the winter because neither one of them are working in the winter. Right. And they had to spend all of their money mm-hmm. to get into a place, and their rent is doubled. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They did find a place, but they're paying literally twice yeah. as much as they were. So...
0: So the, the Moa Valley Multicultural Center is actively looking for places where these families can go. Any any word from the property management company or the real estate agent? I, I,
8: I spoke to a, a woman named Joanne from Hutbud, the local mm-hmm. property management company, and she had nothing to say except that once those notices were sent out, their role and this process um, ended, mm, yeah. so they they really haven't been involved. Yeah. But they didn't really, um, from what I understand from Rihanna, they didn't really uh, cooperate, mm. and you know there wasn't a whole lot of um, compassion in play. Mm-hmm. And there doesn't have to be, but in, in any event, the builders, the developer, okay. I believe they were unaware. Of the housing crisis, Mm -hmm. how that can be, I have no idea because it's everywhere. Uh It's certainly everywhere in the West, and they do live in the West from what Uh I understand. But in any event, they seem to be willing to um, do what they can to help. That doesn't mean that they don't have to be out by January 31st. Um, but they might, you know, get their deposits back now rather than then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were all month to month on this on this uh, lease. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they just weren't protected. Yeah. You know, just another, th- you know, a- another way to make vulnerable people even more vulnerable is to make them go month to month.
0: There is a lot of that in town. Anything else to mention about this piece?
8: All I would say is if if you've got an extra few dollars laying around, uh, think of Moab Multicultural Center, think of mm-hmm. Moab Solutions, uh, the people that are out there either helping people get into homes mm-hmm. or, you know, helping the people that, that need it the most. Mm-hmm. We we need to support them as much as we can.
0: And next, Doug, um, there's a piece in the Times Independent about North San Juan County and getting its own fire department. Can you tell us about this?
8: Yes. The Moab Valley Fire Protection District for decades has provided Memorandum of Understanding with San Juan County to provide fire protection services in the San Juan County portion of Spanish Valley. Okay. San Juan County um, is being proactive. San Juan County Administrator Mac McDonald made the decision to set up a fire department that will be trained by Moab firefighters hmm. and have it close to I believe it 's old airport road, okay, um, not far from the the new medical clinic mm-hmm. that they 've built out there uh, San Juan county is just paying attention to northern San Juan right. because of growth it 's you know people that live there, most of them consider themselves moabites, but but they live in san juan county mm-hmm. so um, they 're providing services, and that 's what government 's supposed to do and, and He said that um, you know, we don't want to wait 20 years and look back and go, why didn't we do this then? However, there are issues. Okay. There was no warning giving to Moab Fire Department. And uh, Fire Chief T.J. Brewer was um, a little bit upset with that. I was thinking about this last night um, after the, the mm-hmm. paper was put to bed. You know, they just got done uh, going through a very painful budgeting process. Mm-hmm. They raised property mm-hmm. taxes, um, mm-hmm. um and they're being— hounded by the county to annex in more people. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know where they could go where people are. And get any more tax revenue because the county's on the hook mm-hmm. to pay them for all of the out-of-district incident responses they do. So this might just doom that whole annexation yeah. because it won't be worth it. Just annex raw land mm. where nobody's living. Um, you you got to have rooftops mm. to, to assess property taxes. So, mm-hmm. um,
0: oh wow! So they, it could call the whole process into question.
8: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that they mm-hmm. that they budgeted. Uh, a, an average of what they could expect in getting compensated under the the MOU, the Memorandum Uh of Understanding. And then the other whammy is this might totally um, destroy any opportunity to annex.
0: Okay. So big questions. Big questions ahead for the Moa Valley Fire Department.
8: Right. There there could be, uh, you know, ramifications. and, and, And clearly, you know, it's one of the last truly volunteer fire departments Uh around they're 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 going away rapidly
0: now northern san juan county did um san juan county administrator or the you know commissioners have any sort of timeline as to when this was going to get set up
8: i believe it's basically imminent okay Um, (laughs) so that's where
0: the surprise comes in yeah Yeah. and
8: and and yeah chief brewer um uh, obviously the the department will continue to provide uh, protection services uh, in the interim until uh, it it does come to fruition and they will also be the training agency
0: these issues are really interesting and i appreciate reading about them in the paper because it calls into a lot of big questions and we're still a rural area and the system of like payment taxing for emergency services is complicated.
8: It is, and it's expensive. Yeah, and the need for more revenue uh-huh. never goes away. You're you're never at a point where, uh-huh. well, we need three hundred thousand uh, this year and for the next ten years. Right. It seems like it goes up every year. Doug
0: McMurdo, editor of the Times Independent, subscription information and more stories can be found at MoabTimes.com. Personnel at the Moab City Police Department have come under scrutiny for a variety of issues in recent months. Now, a new report outlines policy violations made by officers in a 2021 incident. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News explains. The Moab City Police Department
6: recently released a report on an investigation into two officers, which found that the pair had violated multiple policies, including body camera use, mask wearing, and standards of conduct. And so the incident happened in February. It was February 23rd, um, 2021. And the two officers were Clint Johnston and Dan Malone. Mm -hmm. And the investigation found that, yeah, they... Failed to use their body cameras and they also used coarse language while on duty Mm. Um, and johnston failed to wear a face mask while dealing with the public which violated department policy and also a state public health order That was in effect. Okay, so basically the incident Um a bystander called grand county dispatch to report that there was a child alone in a vehicle And the child appeared to be in like great distress Mm -hmm. and so, um, The police officers came. They found the owner of the car by running the license plate number. And then they located the owner within the store. And then um, Johnston issued a child abuse citation. Mm. Um, But then there was a bunch of issues with like when the officers activated their body cameras. Johnston, his body camera was muted for like Mm. most of it. And then... Recording showed that the two officers used expletives and suggested that the man should be jailed out of spite Mm. when they were speaking privately. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and then Johnston didn't wear a face mask. And so the police department recently released this report that showed that, you know, all these things like violated their policy. And then it also just kind of brought up that there has been chronic issues mm-hmm. in the Moab City Police Department, especially with body cam misuse. Brayden Palmer came to a city council meeting, talked all about body cameras and like what kind the police department use and everything. He did say that, you know, sometimes they make mistakes.
0: So the police department released this report on mm-hmm. this investigation. What about disciplinary actions? Are there any? Regarding discipline, Palmer said that he couldn't get specific on personnel
6: matters. Um, and then the city issued a statement um, following the report that said that the city takes complaints seriously. The city is going to allocate additional funds for body camera training and equipment. And then Braden Palmer said that he couldn't get specific on personnel matters.
0: Okay. Now, for listeners who are regular um Listeners to this program, you might remember um, that Judge Don Torgerson several months back said in a courtroom that the Moab City Police Department does have a problem with body camera misuse, and it was in relation to this case in particular, where it was found that there were violations at the PD. You can read more about that in the Moab Sun News this week, and there are other articles we want to go to. Tell us what is happening at Looking Glass.
6: Yeah, so in June uh, 2021, a parcel of land near Looking Glass Arch, which is managed by the Utah School and Institutional Trust Lands Administration, or SITLA, the parcel of land was leased to the luxury glamping company called Under Canvas, Mm -hmm. and they're planning to build a new site on the parcel. Um, So in June, this news sparked immediate action from a bunch of residents. Um, There was a petition urging Sitla and Under Canvas to dissolve their lease created by the group Save Looking Glass. Mm. And the petition has over 2,800 signatures, and the campaign has raised $1,400. So I talked to Under Canvas and Sitla. Um, Under Canvas said that they have no established timeline for the project, and Sitla recently told me that they will receive a yearly payment of $25,000 while the project is under construction Mm. and until the expected opening date of November 1st, 2023. Okay. And once construction is complete, SITLA will receive an annual payment of $110,000 plus 5% of the receipts made by under Canvas. So they're expecting to receive more than $5 million over Mm. the 30-year lease term length.
0: Wow. So this piece, this was a follow-up to reporting that um, the Moab and News had done, you know, several months ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there any chatter in the Moab community, or did you reach out to people who were still very much opposed to this project? Yeah, so I did talk
6: to um, Daily Heron, who organized the Save Looking Glass campaign. Um, and she said they are still trying to um dissolve the lease, but also she's found that it's been hard to find information mm. about um expected opening dates and everything. And I mean, yeah, like Under Canvas said that they have no timeline and the only timeline that I got was from Sitla. Mm. Sure. Um, and I also tried to reach out to a design firm that had designed a site plan for Under Canvas, like way back in June. Um, but they didn't get back to me. And so it's like very unclear what under canvas is planning on doing, but I mean, they have a conditional use permit from San Juan County, um, that was approved in June. And also they recently were approved to start building a road from Mm -hmm. the BLM. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think ultimately, like, it sounds like the project is definitely happening
0: right it's in motion um,
6: yeah it's very much in motion and i think now that it's 2022 like 2023 doesn't look that far away
0: mm, Yeah, um
6: mm-hmm. it's really interesting um i think like talking to sitla and talking to under canvas and so the sitla parcel of land falls right on kind of like the beginning of the rock climbing route okay. um, at Looking Glass Arch. And so if you've ever been there, especially if you're coming from the less popular side of it, mm-hmm. um, like if you're coming into it and you see the big like amphitheater part, um, you'll pass right by the Sitla land. And so technically, this land falls right on a little portion of the rock that, you know, if Sitla wanted to, they could close that off and say right. that it's private mm-hmm. um but they are very insistent that they're not going to do that and also under canvas is pretty insistent that they are also not going to close off the rock um but i think that's like the main worry of right. residents right. and Daly heron also mentioned just being worried that if more and more people are staying at the under canvas place and going to the rock um she said she's worried that people will start climbing on it if mm-hmm. they have like Mm-hmm. No experience, and then it'll become an issue. But yeah, I think what was most interesting to me um, when I was learning about Sitla lands is that they form this distinctive pattern. Um, mm. So basically, trust lands were granted to Utah in 1896, um, and then Sitla was formed in 1994, and they took over management. So these trust lands have been around for a super long time, and basically, how they were divvied up is that the entire state was divided up into these six mile by six mile parcels that were further divided into 36 square mile sections. Um, And trust lands fall in sections two, 16, 32 and 36. Mm. And so they form this really interesting pattern um and also they don't follow any natural lines in the landscape or topography.
0: Mm. Um where you're looking at a map and yeah. there's these square blocks. Exactly. And they're not they're not following rivers, creeks, yeah. mountains. Yeah. Okay. They're
6: literally just squares. It's yeah. like mm-hmm. they literally just look they looked at a flat paper map <laughs> right. and divided it up. And so <laughs> that's why this Sitla Land like randomly chunks off a portion mm-hmm. of looking glass. Sure. Um And also, SITLA is required to generate revenue on these lands. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I talked to Marla Kennedy, who's the communications director at SITLA. And she said that SITLA, yeah, is required to generate revenue. And so they're going to, basically. Mm -hmm. She was like, anyone who offers us the most money gets that land Mm -hmm. um, because they're constitutionally um required to do that and she said sitla lands are not public lands and sitla does not manage its trust lands for the general welfare or the use of the public Mm -hmm. so she was very frank in being like Look, almost like you're welcome that we are allowing people on this rock at all because we really don't have to. Mm, um,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's where you see people butting up against this organization a lot because mm. SITLA is um, consistent. They're saying this is not public land. They they are mandated to develop or use the land to um, highest and best use, making the most money for their organization and for Utah. Mm -hmm. And in this area, it's tourism. Other areas, it might be mining or extraction, but in this area, we're seeing these uh, tourism related projects.
6: The land was previously leased by cattle ranchers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think obviously they can't compete with the $5 million that Sitla is expecting to get from under canvas, Mm -hmm. especially over the 30 years. And Sitla so also mentioned that after the 30-year lease, um, Under Canvas will have four, five-year options to extend the lease. So okay. they could make it 50 years. And then at the end of that, they're required to return the land to Sitla in um, the original state at the time the lease was executed. Interesting. A representative for Under Canvas told me that after the lease agreement, the property will be reclaimed and reseeded with native grasses and shrubs.
0: And that could be a long way away from now. right. That yeah. could be really, That's...
6: it's at least 30 years away.
0: Well, thank you so much for that interesting yeah. piece. Let's mention one more. There's a piece in the Moabson News about a student from Grand County um, who just did something very cool. Yeah, so this is like really cute
6: and it made me really enjoy doing local journalism. Uh-huh. Um, Jenna Hawks is a 2020 Grand County High School graduate who's now attending USU. Um, and she recently published her first paper which um. is super cool. Um, she published research concerning strategies on how to reduce the use of e cigarettes among young people, mm. which is really interesting, especially here, because the Southeast Utah Health District has the highest reported rates of youth vaping in Utah.
0: Really? Wow. Um, in
6: 2019, it found that 21% of Southeast Utah students in eighth, 10th, and 12th grade um, reported using e-cigarettes or like vaping products um that's obviously a huge concern um so jenna and her research team um developed this like teacher training program um because she said like who can have a better impact on students than teachers Mm -hmm. especially when they're in Middle and high school. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they created this teacher training program, which was meant to teach Mm -hmm. teachers (laughs) about what e cigarettes are and also the health issues with them and like how to approach students about Mm -hmm. it. And so they went to teachers and they did this training and then they surveyed the teachers like before and after and they found that it worked really well. And a lot of the teachers reported having like better confidence in talking to students and reported knowing more about e-cigarettes. So the training was really helpful. And Jenna said that she's really happy that like a rural place like this can have this kind of training available and especially something that works. She's studying health and wellness. Um, She said she's studying that because she wants to contribute to society in a meaningful way. And right now she, is in Logan doing her studies, Um, but she's expecting to graduate in May 2022, and then she'll go for a master's in public health.
0: Congratulations to Jenna. Very cool. Go, Jenna. Allison Harford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News Podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.